Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Uh, As we've studied uh, the life of David these last uh, 12 weeks now, uh, I've had, this is my 12th message in the life of David, we've really seen a lot of similarities between David and Jesus. And you know, all Bible scholars agree that David was, in Scripture, a type of Christ. Now, he was a problematic type of Christ. He had issues that Jesus did not have. He had problems that Jesus did not have. But he he is, regardless, a type of Christ. His life is meant to show us that we need a better king than this world can give us. We need a king that can truly save us. But there's a lot more to learn from David's life. David's life actually shows us not only our need for a perfect king, but his life shows us what our life should look like when we are truly surrendered to Christ as our Savior. You know, the Gospel's uh, greatest attribute, the one that we we focus on the most, and we should, is the fact that the gospel saves us from the power and the penalty of sin. Through Jesus' perfect sinless life, through His vicarious death in our place, through His resurrection, uh, through His own power, He has redeemed us to God the Father. He has released us from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and He has adopted us into the family of God. Through His death, burial, and resurrection, we are made children of God. That is probably the greatest aspect of the Gospel. But, the Gospel is meant to do more than just save us from hell. The Gospel is meant to do more than just give us a ticket to heaven. It's meant to change us. It's meant to conform us to the image of the Son. Uh, now, typically, as we, we study the Bible together, what I'll typically do is I'll spend the majority of my time uh, kind of going through verse by verse through the passage and dissecting the passage, giving context, uh, showing us some things that, that, that God wants us to see, and then, you know, quickly at the end, give us a few points to kind of wrap it all together and show us how this text can apply to our lives today. I'm going to do it a little bit differently uh, today. I'm going to start by giving you the point of the passage. This message has one point. We're going to get, get it right out of the way, and then we're going to go through the passage and dissect it. Now, uh, don't get excited, even though there's one point and I'm giving it to you right now. Uh, we still got time together, so don't get worried about that. But here's the point that this message, this passage is giving us. Those who put their faith in Christ will become like Christ. That's, a, that's not just taught in this passage, that's taught throughout Scripture. You know, and uh, there was a book I read uh, several years ago. Uh, called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And I got it because that, that title, uh, it was from a, a Baptist pastor I follow and I, I respect, and he wrote this book, Stop It. I'm like, whoa, let me... And so I started reading the book, and he, here's the, the whole point of it. He starts with a story. 
Uh, he was down uh, in North Carolina, right out. He was in Bible college, uh, but he, he's you know in this kind of college ministry at mindset, and so he he goes to this other college campus and he he starts playing basketball with these college students because that's his way to to meet them, to kind of get to know them, to build a relationship with them, so he can give them the gospel. And he's playing basketball with this one guy, and uh, this guy he, you know, during the the whole basketball game, the guy's you know he's cussing. He's talking about all these women he's been sleeping around with. And, you know, this, this pastor's like, and he's not a pastor yet, he's a college student. He's like, man, this guy, this guy needs Jesus. So after the basketball game, they go out uh, to, to have some, some dinner together. And he's talking to this guy about Jesus and talking about him to the gospel. And the guy stops and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you trying to save me or something? And this, this Bible college student says, well, well, yeah, I'm trying to introduce you to Jesus. He goes, man, don't worry about me. I got saved when I was 12 years old. I said a prayer, and you know, once saved, always saved. Don't worry about that. And that kind of got him thinking about, you know, the gospel is more than just saying a prayer. It's more than just saying, you know, I accept Jesus in my heart, you know, to save me and forgive me of my sins. If you're truly saved by the gospel, then the gospel will change you. It will change you into the image of, of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not, it's not at once. It's not all at once. I wish it was. I wish that once you truly got saved, all your, your sin desires went away. The old man died and you, know, you were a new creature and you just became this perfect. Salvation is a one-time thing that happens instantly. Sanctification takes a whole lifetime. And you are going to be constantly being conformed to the image of Jesus. And you will never reach that image until you close your eyes in death and see him face to face. Then you'll be like him. You won't have your sin desire. You won't have that sin desire anymore. You won't have that temptation anymore. You'll be like him. But as you grow in your relationship with him, you are to be changed in to his image. So let's jump right into it. Second uh, Samuel chapter number nine, starting verse number one. Bible says, and David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called unto him, David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. So, Jonathan, of course, if we you remember from our past messages, Jonathan and David were incredibly close. They were, were, we would call them, you know, best friends. They, you know, David, after he is taken from uh, the, the sheepfold, he's anointed king before he ever meets Jonathan, but he's brought into the kingdom, into the palace, because he plays the harp beautifully, and it kind of soothes uh, Saul's uh, troubled spirit. And so David is kind of hired by the king as a young man. He meets Jonathan, and him and Jonathan become... Uh, very fast and very close friends. They were best friends. Now, of course, David had to flee for his life because uh, Saul had turned on him, tried to kill him. But Jonathan never turned on David. Jonathan never took his father's side. Jonathan was the rightful heir to the throne. He is the oldest son of the king. He deserved the throne. But God had taken the throne from Saul and his family and given it to David. And 
Jonathan recognized God's hand on David's life. So Jonathan helped David. He actually helped David escape Saul. He never was the one who was hunting David. But Jonathan, of course, in a battle, in a war with the Philistines by his father's side, is killed in battle. Uh, and so David, now David's the king. And he wants to honor Jonathan. He wants to be a blessing to anyone of Jonathan's family who's still alive. So he, he gets his, his advisors, he gets his servants together, and he says, hey, is there anybody in Saul's family that I can be a blessing to? Now, every king, or is there anyone left in, in, in Saul's family that I need to know about? Every king... When, they, when a new king took the throne, especially a new king from a new family took the throne, he hunted down every member of the old king's family to kill them. They didn't want to bless them, they wanted to kill them. They wanted to make sure that there was no one left alive who could make a claim to the throne in case they became unpopular, in case people stopped liking them, that this you know, third cousin once removed could you know, get an army together and overthrow the king. So David is doing what most kings did. He's looking for someone in the old king's family, but David has a different purpose. David doesn't want to kill anybody. He doesn't want to wipe out Saul's family. David wants to be a blessing to them. He wants to, to, to help show kindness to anyone that he can. He wanted to honor and remember Jonathan. So they kind of go on a nationwide search to find any relative, and they find this old servant of Saul's named Ziba. And they ask him, hey, is there anyone uh, of Saul's family still left alive? Look at verse number 3. And the king said, is there not yet any in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame in his feet. Now, we, we meet this, this son that Ziba's talking about back in 2 Samuel chapter 4 after Saul's death. His name is Mephibosheth. A uh, wonderful name. You know, if you're, anybody's still having kids, name your next kid Mephibosheth. Uh, it'll be great. Nobody will ever pick on him about it at all. Uh, but anyway, so he, he tells him about the son. We meet Mephibosheth back in chapter 4 when David, when Saul is killed, the servants in the house, in the palace, they they, they flee, they run for their lives, and they take all the, the, the people in there with them because they're afraid one of two things are going to happen. David, who's going to, David's going to take the throne, and then David's going to come in and kill them all. Or the Philistines are going to come and kill them all because the Philistines just killed Saul and his army. So they, they grab up Mephibosheth, and they're leaving, and in their haste, one of the servants drops baby Mephibosheth, breaks both his legs. Uh, now, we don't know a lot about, it must have been a bad break because uh, obviously there was no hospitals, uh, there was no you know, orthopedic surgeons to put it back together. So Mephibosheth, he heals, but he, he's crippled for the rest of his life. He, he can't walk, uh, he can't do anything, so he, he ends up being crippled uh, the rest of his life. Look at verse number 4. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machar, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. Then King David said and fetched, sent and fetched him out of the house of Machar, and the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. 
Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto my master's son all that pertained to Saul and all his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. And then Ziba said unto the king, According to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's son. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame in both his feet. Now, this story, uh, it's, it's a beautiful picture of not only the gospel, but it's a beautiful picture of the grace and mercy of King David. But it, it shows us more than that. It shows us the power of the gospel in the life of the believer. Remember last time we, you know, I was here speaking, uh, in, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, David wanted to build a temple for God. He had this dream, had this vision about God... Of course, by this time, God was living it was uh, the the presence of God. God was living in heaven, but the presence of God was dwelling in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was almost a thousand years old by this time. Uh, it's kind of a it's getting some age on it. It's getting frayed at the edges, fading, and it's not as beautiful as it used to be. And David wants to build this beautiful, grand temple for God's presence to dwell in. And God comes to David and says, "David, that's not your job." Your job's not to bless me. Your job's to take care of me. David, I'm going to bless you. David, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. And David's response to really fully understanding the promises of God and the grace of God in his life, his response was to, to worship God, was to sing praises to God. But now, he goes a step further. He wants to be a blessing to other People. And God had made an unconditional promise to David. And God told David, David, you're going to fail me. You're going to not keep your word. You're gonna, you and your children are going to turn your back on me. But even when you are unfaithful to me, I'm going to be faithful to you. So David had been shown incredible mercy, incredible grace, incredible goodness from God. And his response at first is to worship God. But now, in chapter 9, we see the second aspect of his response to God's generosity. After receiving incredible generosity from God, David looks for someone he can be generous to. Three times in this chapter, David says, go find me someone I can be a blessing to. You know, David is not responding to a need right in front of him. No one comes to David and says, hey David... There's this guy named Mephibosheth. He's, 
you know, he's Saul's, he's, he's Jonathan's son. Uh, after Jonathan's death, he was, he was crippled in, a, in an accident. And, man, he's just, he's not doing well. He, he, he's down in Lodibar. He's poor. He's forgotten. He, he really needs your help. David did not have any idea about this need. He is looking for a way to be a blessing. He's not responding out of guilt or obligation. He has taken initiative. Because of the grace that he has received, he wants to show grace to someone else. And David sets his attention, sets his favor on a very unlikely person when he blesses Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was technically an enemy of David's. He's a relative of Saul. Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. He is Jonathan's only surviving son. So Mephibosheth has a claim to the throne. He is technically an enemy of David's. Uh, you know, he had a right to the throne. And most kings, again, when they took power, anyone who had a right to the throne was killed because the king wanted to protect his throne, wanted to protect his legacy. Now, it happened all the time. It was a way for the new king to protect himself. And so that's why when Mephibosheth is brought before David, Mephibosheth is scared. Look at verse 8 again. <clears throat> and he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a, do a dead dog as I? He throws himself at David's feet. He is showing reverence to David. He's insulting himself like, Hey, you know, I'm just, I'm just a worthless nothing. I'm a dead dog. Don't worry about me, David. I'm not basically he's saying, David, I'm not, I'm not a threat to you. I'm not going to do anything against you. Just, you know, you leave me alone and I'll leave you alone and we'll get along just fine. So, you know, he's certain he's about to die, but you know, he's more than an enemy. He's also lame. Now, uh, he was considered useless in those days because of his, his injury, because he was crippled. He couldn't walk, had to be carried everywhere. He couldn't work the land. That's why later on in the chapter, David has to get Ziba and says, Hey, uh, all your children are going to work the land for him because he can't work the land. He's crippled. He can't do it. So this was a military and an agrarian society. So Mephibosheth, you know, he was basically a drain on the culture. He couldn't help anybody. He couldn't serve in the army. He couldn't work the land according to the culture and the society, he was considered useless. Now look, we know that today that is ridiculous and that's offensive to us and it should be. But in this culture, Mephibosheth was, was worse than useless because he was a drain on the society. He's of no use to anyone. He had to be carried around anywhere. So he's, a, he's an enemy. He's a useless drain on the kingdom. But he is also considered by the Jewish society, he's considered to be cursed by God. Leviticus 21 says, For whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach a blind man or a lame, or he that hath a flat nose, which you know, I, I looked into that in the, in the, the Hebrew, because uh, I want to know what all these things mean, and it literally means if you've got a flat nose. Uh, so anybody that's like you've got a flat nose, somebody broke your nose, according to Jewish culture, you're... You're cursed by God because someone broke your nose. I don't understand that either. Uh, or anything superfluous, or a man that hath a broken footed, or broken handed, or cocked, crooked back. Uh, anybody got a, a bad back? Yeah, yeah, you're cursed by God. Uh, 
or a dwarf, or he that has a blemish in his eye, or have scurvy, or scabbed, or hath his stones broken. No man that hath a blemish of the seed of Aaron, the priest shall come nigh to offer, uh, to offer offerings of the Lord made by fire. So the Jewish law, if you had anything wrong with you, if you had a flat nose, if you had a pimple, whatever it was, you were cursed by God. You could not come into God's presence. So Mephibosheth has nothing going for him. He's an enemy of the king. He is uh, worthless to the king. He is cursed by God according to culture. His name literally means spreader of shame. I've always wondered why people name their kids like they did in the Bible. You know, who names their kids spreader of shame? Like Larry was talking last week, who names their kid sickly? I mean, that's just, you're asking, for not so, you know, his name means spreader of shame. He means, he lives in Lodibar. Lodibar literally means a place of no pasture. It was a desolate, cursed place. They'd had famine and pestilence and for, for decades, nothing could grow there. So the poor, the for, Lodibar was where the forgotten, the rejected, the hated of the country lived. So here is an enemy of the king, considered useless by society, considered cursed by God from the culture, who lived in a forgotten place, and the king invites him to sit at his table. The king says, I'm going to treat you like one of my own. I'm going to treat you like one of my children. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to allow you to eat at my table. Now David, he tells Ziba that he wants to show kindness to him. And the word kindness there is the Greek, is the Hebrew word hased. It means unconditional love. Or it can also be translated as Covenant love. This is the kind of love that God is showing David. God just told David in chapter 7, David, I'm going I'm to love you unconditionally. David, when you hurt me, when you reject me, when you forget about me, when you sin against me, I'm still going to love you. I'm going to love you with a covenant love where I'm going to make a promise to you and no matter what you do, I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to keep my promise. David does all of this, the Bible says, for Jonathan's sake. David doesn't say, man, Mephibosheth is a great guy. He deserves my, my mercy. He deserves my grace. He deserves my love. Mephibosheth did nothing to deserve any of this. But David said, because of Jonathan and what Jonathan has done for me, and how Jonathan treated me, I'm going to be a blessing to Mephibosheth. In David's eyes... Jonathan deserved what Mephibosheth was giving. Can you, can, you, can you understand what's being shown to us here? David received the same kind of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness from God that he is showing to Mephibosheth. David is living out the Gospel. We like Mephibosheth, are enemies of God. We are useless to God. There is nothing we can do that God needs. 
You know, God doesn't need us for anything. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't, he doesn't need us at all. We are useless enemies of God. We are crippled spiritually. But see, we're worse than Mephibosheth. Because Mephibosheth was considered an enemy of God by David's army and David's inner circle. But Mephibosheth's in hiding. He's not, he's not getting an army together to attack David. He's not trying to overthrow the king. The Bible says we were rebels against God. We not only rebelled against God, we killed his son when he came for us. We hung and look, we can all say, well, no, I didn't, you know, I didn't do that. I, number one, I wasn't there. I wasn't, you know, none of us, as far as I know, Brees is a little old, but I don't think he was at the cross. And I don't think he was there when Jesus hung on the cross. None of us were. And even if we were, we're, we're none of us are Jews. None of us are Romans either, as far as I know. So, legally speaking, none of us did anything against Jesus. But here's the thing. He hung on the cross because of us. It was my sin that hung him there. I didn't, nail, I didn't drive the nails in, but I might as well have because my sin did it. I was an enemy, a rebel, a murderer of the Son of God, useless to him. I was a I am a spreader of shame. I am rightfully and deservingly under God's curse. And look, our shame doesn't come from an outdated culture. Our shame is real. We deserve the curse God placed us under. Ephesians chapter two says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God chose me to show off His love, His mercy, and His grace. He literally invited me, an enemy, a spiritual cripple, a useless dead dog as Mephibosheth calls himself. He invited me to sit at his table. Not because of me. Not because I deserved it. Not because I earned it. He did it because of Jesus. Because of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. And I am invited to be a child of God. His resurrection, his death, burial, and resurrection did for me what I could never do. He paid my sin debt to God. And now, we sit at His table as loved, favored sons and daughters. We are loved unconditionally. We forever have a seat at God's table because of His chesed love for us. And in response to that, we should do exactly what David did. David looks for someone he can show love to. David looks for someone he can show mercy to. David looks for someone he can show grace to. He wants to show love to someone like he has been loved by God. That's why I said earlier, those who put their faith in Christ become like Christ. You know, we see that a sign that you've truly accepted Christ as your Savior is you are eager and looking for ways you can show love and grace and mercy and forgiveness to others just like you've been given. You know, we see it in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we have the story of the, the woman who 
We all know the story. Jesus is sitting at a table eating with his disciples, and there's this woman under the table. She's got this expensive bottle of perfume. She breaks this alabaster box of perfume and washes Jesus' feet with it and you know, washes his feet with her tears and with her hair. And look, she's not a wealthy woman. It's an expensive bottle of perfume. She breaks it and pours it on her feet, and no one asked her to do that. You know, in that culture, you would wash the feet of guests in your house, but you would just have a little basin of water, and you would wash the dust off their feet and be done with it. But no one asked her. It's not like someone, you know, people come in and they go to her and say, you know what, Jesus' feet really stink. Can you do something about that? Jesus' feet did not stink. I can guarantee you that. But she, she wants to be a blessing to him. She wants to, sh- she wants to thank him for the love and forgiveness she's been given. You know, a lot of people rebuked her for doing it. They thought, man, she should, she should, even Judas, he's like, she should sell the perfume and, you know, use the, the money to help the poor. She wasn't meeting a need Jesus had. She just pours out grace in response to the grace she had received. And when people rebuked her, here's what Jesus said. Wherefore I say unto you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Those who have, who have been forgiven much, love much. See, that may be our problem. We don't realize how much we've been forgiven. Who do you have in your life that you show love and grace and mercy to? Do you have a Mephibosheth in your life where you can be gracious and merciful and loving in response to the grace and mercy and love you've been given. See, Jesus poured out His blood for you. He gave His life for you. He rose for you. And when you recognize that, you look for someone to show love and grace to. And look, there's a lot of opportunities for you to do that, not just in your culture. There's a lot of opportunities to do that here at New Grace. You know, we have the community cover and the community closet. We feed and clothe the needy in our community every single month. You could volunteer to help with distribution there. Look, Kim, I don't know if a lot of y'all know that, Kim's been remodeling a community closet. Well, yeah, I painted the floor. We've been remodeling the community closet. It's empty right now. You should go look at it. We got the walls painted. That, that, that room was a dark, dank mess. Uh, it had mold and smelled funky. We fixed all that. We've got it painted up. The floor is nice. But you know what? She's going to need help putting all that stuff back. Getting that stuff together. The community uh, cupboard is going to need help with distribution every other Friday. Maybe you're like, well, I can't come and distribute. You can give to it. You can give financially. You can give you know, uh, goods to help, uh, food to help with that. You could volunteer to help in that incredible ministry. You could donate goods or finances to provide what's needed. Saturday, this coming Saturday, we're going to be serving at Straight Street. I've got information for you. Some of you all asked about what we're going to do. But we're, we're going to be serving. The Straight Street serves, you know, kind of the forgotten of our community. We're going to be serving them and loving them uh, and doing what we can for them. Next uh, Saturday, we're going to be uh, going down. We're going to be being a blessing to, to people who uh, would love life. We're going to be go down and, and pray and try to be a blessing and an encouragement to women who are in crisis looking for a way out of the trouble they're in. And we're going to try to show them that the, there's other ways in getting an abortion. And we're going to show them the love of Jesus Christ and try to help them in that manner. Next, uh, next summer, we're going to be 
go into, into rural West Virginia to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We're going to be distributing food and clothing to the needy. We're going to be doing a VBS for a local church to be a blessing to those. There's a lot of ways we can show the love of God right here in our church. You could help volunteer at the rescue mission. If God's called you to do it, you could be a foster parent or, or adopt if you're called to do that. Maybe you could you know, give a, a, an incredible financial gift to the, the kingdom of God. Not necessarily here, but maybe here, I don't know. Maybe you could use your talents that God has given you to build His kingdom instead of your kingdom. Maybe you should forgive someone that has hurt you deeply because Christ has forgiven you. Now look, forgiving someone, I've got to say this all the time, forgiving someone doesn't mean you've got to let them back in your life. Someone's hurt you deeply, either emotional or physical or however type of, they've hurt you deeply. Forgiving them isn't for them to let them back in your life. You're forgiving them because Christ has forgiven you. You are releasing them of the penalty of what they've done to you. You're not doing it for their sake. You're doing it for Jesus' sake. One of the greatest uh, stories I've heard about this was back in 2006. Uh, you probably, it's been a while, but in 2006 there was a, a gunman who, uh, in, who took over an Amish schoolhouse up in uh, Pennsylvania, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, kind of boarded him up, and by the end of the, the thing, he had shot 10, 10 people in this Amish schoolhouse. Five of them died, and then he killed himself. Now, hours after the murders, members of the, the family of the Amish community, people who their, their children had been killed, they visited the killer's family. They visited his wife and his children and his parents to offer sympathy for their loss. To tell them, we're here to do whatever we can to help you and to support you in the days ahead. At the gunman's funeral, over half of the mourners were from the Amish community that he had targeted and destroyed. You know, uh, the victims of the tragedy showed nothing but love and support and concern for the family of the man who took their children. The entire nation was amazed by this. As a matter of fact, because of this, a lot of uh, colleges and sociology departments, they did a study on this to try to figure out what allowed these people to offer that type of forgiveness, to show that type of love to someone who had hurt them. And one of the studies concluded this. They said, at the heart of their faith was a man dying for his enemies. And if you are a member of a community that speaks and sings and about it and rehearses and celebrates it constantly, then the practice of forgiving even the murderers of one children will not seem impossible. Most of us have been formed by a culture that nourishes revenge and mocks grace. As Christians, as children of God, we have an unusual ability to forgive. Not because the person who hurt us deserves it, but because Jesus deserves it. And he's forgiven us so much. Ephesians 4.32 And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. The person that you are forgiving 
They probably are not worthy of your forgiveness. But Jesus is. He's worthy of us forgiving anyone because He's forgiven us. Your Mephibosheth moment may not be as big or as powerful as those, but we still have them. Maybe, maybe your Mephibosheth moment is forgiving your spouse for their thoughtlessness. They didn't do anything, they didn't commit adultery or, or anything like that. They just hurt you because we hurt people sometimes unintentionally. And your, your Mephibosheth moment is just forgiving them. Maybe it isn't some grand financial gift. Maybe it's just faithfully giving to the work of God every single week. Maybe it's just treating your server at the restaurant this afternoon with some respect, with some decency, and giving them a decent tip and a gospel track. Now, if you're not going to leave a good tip, you can leave a gospel track, but you put another church's track down there. Don't put ours. Use, you know, use a, a Mormon track or something. Uh, don't, don't put New Grace down there. Uh, only use a New Grace track if you're giving a good tip. And I'm, look, it's, today a good tip is like 20, 25%. Tip well. Be a blessing to them because they work hard, they serve. But even if you're like, well, I can't tip that much, just tip the regular percent. But treat them like people. Treat them with respect. You know, even, I, there's a lot of, especially the uh, last couple of weeks, I've had to be on, we had a, um, uh, a data breach for us. None of your data is affected. Our website hosting, it doesn't host any of our giving. It only hosts my information. Got hacked and they stole my information, so I got in trouble. Uh, but they, they tried to, you know, a couple weeks, I don't know if you all know this, but some of you may. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, Stacy, our church administrator, got an email uh, from me to change my payroll information to go to my new bank account. She did it, but talked to me about it before it went through, so I was able to fix it. And it was not from me. It was not my new bank account. Someone had taken, had gotten into our church hosting website, email hosting, and copied my email, and was sending. And they've been trying it ever since. And I've been. I, I mean, every time she gets an email, she forwards it to me, and I email the guy back like, "Do we know what you're doing? Stop trying to steal my money." I finally figured out they had how they got in, and I got them out. But I was talking to the, the customer service reps. They were very, very, very unhelpful. They didn't help me at all. Basically, they were like, oops, our bad. Because they're like, well, they must have copied the password. And I'm like, you gave me the password. You generated. And the password wasn't like, you know, one, two, three, four. It was like XQ pound sign backslash hyphen. It was this crazy password. But they gave it to me. Like, well, you, you did it. So what are you going to do to fix it? Because they ended up stealing a couple hundred bucks. I'm like, what are you going to do? And they're just like, well, you know, can't, can't do anything for I wasn't yelling at that guy. It's not his fault. He's just doing his job. It bothers me, and I know people who, when they're, they're talking to customer service reps, sometimes I go on, they get mad at them, they yell at them. They're I'm like, it's, it's, it's not their fault, especially if you're a believer. It's not their fault. Just be nice to people. Treat people decently. Maybe that's your Mephibosheth moment. I'm just going to treat people with the love and respect that I would want if someone does the same thing for me. You know, those who have experienced the generosity of the gospel, we can't help but being generous to others. You know, we've all heard of the golden rule, do unto others as they would have you, you would have them do unto you. Of course, that's scripture. But there's another rule called the silver rule. Do to the one what you wish 
you could do to the many. Here's what I mean by that. David could not invite the entire nation of Israel to eat at his table as a son. So he did it to one. He did it for Mephibosheth. You cannot be extravagantly generous and gracious to everyone in the world, but you can be to one. The point of this message is, is simple. Those who put their faith in Christ will become like Christ. David became radically generous towards Mephibosheth because God had been radically generous to him. David didn't become generous because God commanded him to. He became generous in response to God's lavish love, grace, mercy, and generosity like him. See, here's the thing. You are never going to be like David until you recognize you're Mephibosheth. You're an enemy of the king. Worthless to the king. Undeserving of anything. But he loved you anyway. You were helpless, hopeless, a worthless dog, dead in your trespasses and sins. And while you were his enemy, he died for you and he rose again for you. And in response to that, you'll find your Mephibosheth. You are Mephibosheth, a former enemy, a traitor, a spreader of shame. Like him, we're nothing. We're spiritually crippled. But we are invited to sit at the king's table. We have received that incredible gift. If you've never received that, what's holding you back? You can't do anything to save yourself. God did everything for you. His death, His burial, and His resurrection shows you more love, forgiveness, and mercy than you ever deserved. 1 John 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Think about the promises that God has given you. No condemnation to those who put their trust in Him. Our sins are as far as the east is from the west. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. All those who rise against you will fall. Will fall. God didn't spare His only Son to spare you, to redeem you, and He will freely give you all things. Those promises God has given us the graciousness, the grace, the generosity God has given us causes us to be gracious and generous and forgiving to others. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, if you put your faith in Christ, you'll become like Christ. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.